of Scripture is found this morning in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who loves does not abide in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he has laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. For whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, that's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. This is the Word of God. Shall we pray? Father, we thank You that uh, You teach us so many wonderful practical lessons in life. And we who were born again have been on this journey for a while, and You keep teaching us and we keep learning. And we pray, Lord, that, in fact, we are becoming more like Christ every day. Give us ears to hear your truth today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in my second year of college, which was a long time ago, there was a song that came out, and this, it was entitled this, What the World Needs Now is Love. Some of you remember that. Some of others don't. But the lyrics were something like, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Not just for some, but for everyone. And then it actually seems to be a prayer here, although I think it's a little, not really a prayer, but it says, Lord, we don't need another mountain. We don't need the oceans, rivers. And then it says, we don't need the meadows. We don't need the cornfields and the wheat fields. We don't need the sunbeams and the moonbeams. Oh, listen, Lord, if you want to know, pretty audacious words for the song, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, oh, but for everyone. Now, I know that the love that is being addressed here is not the love that we're going to talk about this morning. But I think it does say a truth here that the world and all need love. Kind of interesting, probably, and there's different expressions of love, different words even for love. There's a love for friendship, there's a love for romantic love, there's a love for sex, and then there's also this love that is a giving love for the benefit of others. 
And if we took some time this morning and began to ask the question, how many of you have ever been hurt by love? Or some of you may be hurting now because of love. You would all have a story that would relate to something like that. And like most of us who have been hurt by love, as a result of that, we launch off into a journey trying to figure out what in the world is love. I did that. I asked a number of people, and they gave all kinds of expressions about that. Uh, They would pontificate in a marvelous way and say really nothing. And I I still was searching for this. Well, what is What is love? So I've been working on a definition of love. And I know we could just simply answer the whole thing by saying the Scripture, God is love. And everything that He manifests is love. But here's what I've uh, come up with so far. This is mine and others and compiled together. Love is a demonstrated, unconditional, sacrificial, God-empowered, commitment to advance the cause of God in the lives of imperfect people. So that means then, if I look at this definition, that I'm going to be dealing with people that may not always be, quote, worthy of our love. And I realize that if I'm going to love like that, to advance the cause of God in the lives of others, it's going to require the empowerment of God. God's going to have to do that. And it may cost me something. It may be very sacrificial. It has to be unconditional. I can't choose to love one and then not another. And it has to be demonstrated. I think that's a key word there because many times we say to each other, I love you. But if I had to conclude that you love me based upon the demonstration, I probably think those are just words. I remember hearing a story not long ago, and it was uh, the expression was, This person got up to their mate, and when they woke up that morning, they said, I love you. And the person responded, thank you. And then they said, well, aren't you going to say something to me? And that person then said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was being manipulated. See, I think sometimes we love others not because we really want to love them. We just want to be loved in that process. Well, I'm so thankful that when we think about love, and John thinks a lot about love, he's he's represented as the apostle of love, which is an amazing declaration. I remember Pastor Aaron telling us this, that he really, really originally was recognized as he and his brother as sons of thunder, angry uh, people. They wanted to destroy. They called, God, Jimmy, call down fire to consume this city that's not honoring you. So, but he learned, I believe, at the very breast of Jesus to learn about love. And he is recognized as the apostle of love. So when we think about love, we know that God has empowered us to love. When God saved us, according to Romans chapter 5, he spread abroad by the presence of the Spirit of God, He spread abroad within us love. We do have the capacity to love. Now, we don't always do that, uh, but we do have the capacity to love. 
In fact, uh, he says, um, owe no man to anything. Rome, uh, Paul says this in Romans uh, 13. Owe no man anything except the debt of love. Which means that you can, in the course of your life, as you accumulate some level of debt, whether it be a school debt or a, a car or a house or personal loan, you can finally make that final payment on those things. But he says in the context of love that I describe for you, there's no final payment. No matter how often you express love, there is yet another payment that is due in that process. And I do believe that the world, both believers and unbelievers, need this kind of love that God has put within us to be expressed to them. I love, uh, even though John is recognized as the apostle of love, probably the greatest definition of love that we've found written anywhere is 1 Corinthians 13, penned under the Holy Spirit by the apostle Paul. And we know many parts of that. I think the one that applies to what we're speaking of today is verse 7. And it says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then he concludes in verse 8, love never fails. Now, what I love about that particular verse that I believe describes what Paul is trying to define for us today, when it says it bears all things, what it really is saying here, I come alongside of someone else who is imperfect and their flaws are obvious. They may have even entrusted to us part of their lives, telling us part of their journey. And in that, there are failures that we see. And what this verse speaks of is that I throw a blanket of love over you, telling you, this is a safe place. I'm going to cover you with my love. I'm going to be here with you until you grow up. And then when it says in the next part of that verse 7, it says it believes all things. It's not naive. It just says, I believe things about you that you don't even believe. I am, as a more mature Christian, have experienced life, have experienced the growth in God. And I know that when God saved you, there is a goal that he has for you. And I believe that for you, even if you don't believe it right now. And he says, and... Uh, I have a hope for you. That is the expectation of certainty. I believe what I believe about you because I know what God is able to do. And I can't wait till that begins to be transformed into your life, everyday experience. And then it says it endures all things, which means, by the way, I don't know how long it's going to take for you to grow up in this area, but I'll be here for you. I'm not going to leave you. Paul says that kind of love doesn't fail. I know when I taught that out at the prison the first time, the very concept, prisoners came up to me and said afterwards, oh, I wished I had known that kind of love. I don't think I would have been here had, it, had I had the opportunity to experience that kind of love. So what we see then is Paul, John is addressing this whole issue of the, the necessity for the benefit of believers and unbelievers, for that kind of love that is sacrificial, that is demonstrated, that is unconditional, 
that advances the cause of Christ within the lives of others. That this is what is really needed in our world. It's amazing to realize that in 1 John, there's in four of the chapters, the only exception is chapter 1, love is addressed. In fact, the word love is used in these five chapters 24 times. That's a lot of expression of love. And we might even find some level of redundancy. It seems to me that what I'm going to preach to you has already been preached by Pastor Aaron and about the power that God has given us and the love that is within us, and it ought to be manifested in deeds. I'm going to preach that to you, and it's sometime in the future when we get to chapter 4 and part of chapter 5, we're going to find the same lesson. It's my observation in Scriptures that when the Word repeats itself, that is, the Word of God repeats itself, it's because it's a hard lesson that needs to be learned, and we usually don't learn it the first time around. So we have to go back at it again. We have to go back at it again in this process. So John is writing then in the context, as I told you last week, of a false teaching that was going around. And it was contrary to God, and there was in this process animosity that was being built up in the family of God, in the church there in Ephesus. And there was hatred that was being manifested, and there was arrogance that was being demonstrated towards one another. And he's saying here in these verses that if you're really of God, you will not hate others. You will not hate your brother in the Lord. Now, there are many tests that are given to us here to demonstrate simply this. The whole book of John can be defined like that. Either you're of God or you're not of God. We've already looked at some of those things, and we'll look at more as we keep going on. If you really love God, if you are of God, you'll keep His commandments. That's just a test. Either you obey His commandments or you don't. If you're really a follower of God, a believer of God, you'll walk with Him. You'll follow Him in that process. And then we'll see that you will not hate others, but you will love. We're going to look at that this morning. But it does say that we should hate the world. We don't love the world because we're not of the world, but we do love those who are in the world in that process. It talks about, even as we talked last week, that we don't habitually abide in sin, that we do practice righteousness, that we do appreciate what Christ has done. So all of these then are tests to show whether or not you are truly of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, last week and even the week before, when we were, when we were talking, remember in the verse, first, very first verse of this chapter, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Behold what, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. It was the love of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that He really began this journey with us in the context of love. He, he loves us. He died for us in that process. And then He says, as a result of that love that He's given to us, we ought to experience that in His righteousness. That is, we are transformed, and because of that we abide in Him, and we do not practice sin. We actually tr- make it a habit of being holy people. And then John moves into it, as we looked last week, to contrast of what the world was saying or the false teachers were saying in the church, that is, that sin doesn't matter. He said, of course sin matters. It's a state of rebellion against God. If sin doesn't matter, why did Christ die on the cross? If sin doesn't matter, why did He oppose and defeat Satan? There's no need for redemption. 
And so it's fact. And then he, if you'll recall, as he goes on in that, he says, those who are really born of God, they don't sin. They don't practice sin, and they practice righteousness. Now look at verse 10 again, and then we'll move into our text this morning. By this, the children of, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. What is that? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's what he just had been explaining there. You can't tell me. Now, listen to this carefully, and if nothing else. He said, you can't tell me that you have a personal, redeemed relationship with God, and then you live like the devil. That is not what the Scriptures teaches. In fact, what John is telling us, that being in Christ is to experience a transformed life. You're changed. You have the new capacity to do otherwise. So he says, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Then he adds this little phrase at the end of verse 10, nor the one who does not love his brother. He adds then that, so I could, I could declare to you this morning, I'm a righteous person. But is it demonstrated? And that's what he's saying here. Now, he said, I'm going to move this to the area of very practical expression. If you say that you're of God, you have been transformed into the righteousness of God and conformity to God, and that will demonstrate itself in obvious actions. Because I have become something in Christ, I now can do things that look like Christ. I never do something to become like Him, but because I am like Him, I now can express that, and that's what He's saying right here. And so in the verses that we have here, there's a contrast. John uses this a lot in this letter that he's writing. There's contrasts that are established here. And he's contrasting the way of the world in terms of relationships, and then he's talking about the way that we as believers should be conducting ourselves, contrasted very clearly. And he starts with the way of the world. There are three relationships that are described here. Either I will murder, or I will hate, or I will express myself in indifference. Those are three possibilities. That's the way of the world. Or I will find myself moving and acting in Christian love. Both are defined here in this sense. He starts out by making a general statement here when he says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Jesus, when he had his disciples together, he makes these words. He says these words to them in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. I am giving you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's the test that Jesus puts out there, that there is clear evidence that you have been changed because you love others. Now, when he talks about a new commandment, it's not as if the Bible has never addressed the issue of loving. The new commandment has this part added to it, just as I have loved you. Here is a new model. Here's a new expression. And you should love just as that is. And we'll learn a little bit about what that even looks like this morning. Now, it's kind of interesting then, as he begins to make the contrast, 
He talks, first of all, about what the world acts like. Notice what he says in verse 12. Not as Cain. How would you like to be remembered like that? Whatever you do in your Christian walk, don't be like Cain. This is years later and still being preached today. Don't be like Cain. Well, if I'm not going to be like Cain, and we're talking about this love, then I better understand who Cain is and what he did. And it says this, as Cain, who was of the evil one, that is, that which was resting within him, that was driving him, John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil, the lust of your father you will do. He was driven by Satan, and in that driving passion, he slew his brother. That's a pretty drastic measure. When you think about that, he killed his brother. We're talking about the children of Adam and Eve. We're talking about Adam and Eve who had walked with God, who had fellowship with him. And in the first family, there are those, here is Cain killing Abel. That's that's pretty amazing. I mean, we'll look at that as we look at this. I I just can't imagine, and I can't imagine the grief that must have caused Adam and Eve. And you have to understand, they must have talked about God. They must have just shared all that was going on and the relationship they had and naming everything. And they must have talked about that. They had to hear stories in regards to that. I can't imagine I wouldn't talk about that. But something happened to Cain in that, that the evil one controlled him and he slew his brother. And then he tells us the reason in verse 12. And for what reason did he slay him? Because the deeds, his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's exactly what transpires here. So what he's saying here then is that, uh, and, and if we went back to Genesis chapter 4, and this is where this is talked about, if we went back to Genesis chapter 4, we would find this story accounted for us. And there was this process whereby Cain and Abel were coming to present a sacrifice to the Lord. May I say then that both were coming to worship the Lord. We have to say that. They both came to make a sacrifice. So, but I believe one was authentic and one was being very religious, but not transformed, not true follower of God. For uh, Abel offered a animal, an, an animal a sacrifice. Cain brought the produce of his own hand from the ground. And I believe that, I, I think that both Cain and Abel knew what was expected of them. I think that an animal sacrifice was expected of them. Because even when we see that um, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's, Cain went away and his countenance changed and he was disappointed. God approached him and he said, what are you doing, Cain? Don't you understand that you have opportunity to change the course of action here? And sin is crouching at the door ready to really destroy you. Make a choice here. Now, what was so offensive about Cain's sacrifice 
that was contrary to the acceptance of Abel's sacrifice. Abel brought to God what was expected of him from God. Cain brought to God the produce of his own hand, believing then that through his own efforts he could be found acceptable to God. And God is saying very clearly, no, it's not what you think, it's not what you do, it's not what you accomplish, but it's what I have said, and it's what I have said you should do. Now, this is the component that makes up all of the world. There's only two groups of people in all the world, either those who understand God, obey God, follow God, or those who make up their own gods and want what they do to be found acceptable to God, and when they're not, they're ticked off. So it says here that Cain then, instead of repenting and bringing forth a sacrifice, instead of repenting, he is filled with jealousy and uh, anger. And from that, he kills Abel. I remember seeing um, the movie... um, Amadeus. Remember that? Antonio Salania, I think that it? Salania? Is that correct? He was very jealous of Mozart. And he was jealous because Mozart just had this gift, this talent to produce music. And if you remember the movie, he really wanted to kill. Mozart. He, he really acted as if he was, uh, and the movie portrayed him that way, although I don't think history would bear all witness to all of this, that he was a, a drunken, womanizing, that is Mozart, drunken, womanizing person. And, and, and uh, um, Antonio was saying, I live a decent life. I live a good life. And I can't do what he does. How can this be God? How can you be this way? He was saying, I believe through my efforts, I ought to be accepted. And he wanted to kill. Now, he was jealous of Mozart, and because of his extreme, amazing talent, make no mistake about it, incredibly talented, but he was jealous of him. Now, here's a different thing we have with Cain and Abel. Cain was jealous not of the gift. He was jealous of the righteousness of Abel. He said, I don't like the fact that you are found acceptable before God, and I'm not. And so it's almost as if he says to God, you want a sacrifice? You want a blood sacrifice? I'll give you one. And the word slay here is the word that a wolf does to its prey. It is destructive. It is vicious in its nature. It is the way it's described that you actually do make a sacrifice, and it is the, sorry to be so gory here, but you actually sit, slit the throat, and, and it's a vicious act, as if coming up behind. And it does say there in Genesis 4 that Cain and Abel then out, went out for a walk. Abel had no idea what was going to happen there. Maybe he thought, hey, maybe we're going to talk about what God had to say to you. Maybe we're going to talk about a change here. No, Cain knew already in his heart because the devil had filled his heart and jealousy was ruling and and this self-righteousness was there. And he said, what I want to do is get rid of you. And he did. He killed him. 
even to say to God, am I my brother's keeper? Do I have any responsibility horizontally to others? Well, in this passage, we see that we do. But that's really what happened. You say, well, that doesn't go on today, does it? Of course it does. If you get um, Fox's Book of Martyrs, there, just get the map. And it'll show you currently, today, go there, Google it, find the map. It'll show you today where people are being killed simply because they believe in a one true and living God, and others around them dislike them because their uh, light, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men. That means that we manifest who God is to others, and it reminds them of their inadequacies. They're not, they don't measure up. And instead of changing, they don't put the light out. They want to kill the messenger. And this is exactly what transpires here. So he says, don't be that way. Don't be one who thinks you can come to God on your own standards and expect God to perform to your dictations. And don't be one who is jealous of others, who, is, who, who it seeks to strike out at them in that very process, those who are righteous. Well, there's another relationship that is then, then defined there. You might say, sitting here this morning, I would never murder somebody else. I have never done that. But in case... We miss it here. He says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Oh, well, that may be a word that I've used. That may be somebody I hate. Remember what Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount. Be very careful what you say in regards to hate, because you can bring judgment, because really one who hates is a murderer. Defined as such, you are a murderer. And hate really means then... That if I could get away with it, and there would be no reprisal to this, I'd kill you. But because I don't want the consequences, I won't kill you. But the attitude is still there. There's no love and affection for you. I love what Jesus says about this. He says it in John 15, verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Let's quit getting, let's get over this attitude. I just want the world to like me. The world doesn't like you. They don't like the light you represent. They don't like the truth. They don't like the way you make them feel about life. I read the story that talked about Aristides, who was a citizen of Athens, and he was a noble man. He was, in fact, called Aristides the Just. That's a nice title, isn't it? Aristides the Just. I go around, I'm a just man, I'm a fair man, I'm a righteous man. Well, they brought him and they banished him from the city, and one of the members of the jury that was there was asked, why did you banish? Why did you cast your vote against him? He said, because I was tired of him being called the just. See, because, now why? Because he's, they don't want to hear the word just? No, because, and here's the, the feedback from that. When he's called the just, I'm reminded of who I am. And I hate that. 
and I don't want to quote. Now, the Lord says other things about this. I love what it's the most clear message of God's love is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We love that verse. I love that verse. Probably one of the earliest verses that we memorized. But then he says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's why he came. He wasn't coming to judge. He was coming to rescue. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. They're already standing under judgment because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, speaking of Jesus himself, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. They were about being evil persons. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So if we are light, he doesn't want to come around us. People want to, don't want to be around you. I've told you about my friend when I went down when I was in the military, and we were the only two down there from our base taking this additional training that was there. And he woke up one morning, and he said, you know, I don't like you. And well, Dwight, that's good to know, I guess. What's the problem? Well, you don't drink with me. No, I don't drink with you. And you don't get drunk. No. And you don't have a headache. And you always have money in your pocket. I said, Dwight, I don't think it's me you hate. I think it's you you hate. This is all you are. See, the world doesn't want to be around. And I can't tell you the number of times, even when I was in the military, that friends that I would go out with for the evening would want to get me to drink. Because my not drinking would expose their drunken habits. And so they would rather put the light out or let the light be put away and just be like us. But he goes on to say in verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested and having been wrought in God. God is the one that does it. So when I do righteous things, that is because I'm of God, but the world hates that. And we know that because of the jealousy of the, of the priests that, and, and, the, and the whole Sanhedrin in the crucifixion of Christ. It, jealousy drove that. It's not because Jesus was a bad person. He went around doing good. He was a righteous, just person, but they hated him because he was having a higher billing and a greater manifestation of transformation than they were in their process. And so that drove them then in their hatred to get rid of the light and to crucify Christ. That is the nature of the world around us in that simple hatred that is there. All right? Now the third thing he says here, not only the world will destroy and murder, not only will the world hate you, these are patterns that we can choose, but it also, and it's a lighter one, but it's still very sobering, he said they will have no compassion. Look what he says down here just a little further then. The world hates you. He talks about in verse 14 that we've changed from life to death here. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's what's really within the heart of this person, verse 15. And we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
But I'll just make one little quick comment there. It does not mean that murderers cannot be saved. It just means that if you have the habitual pattern of hate and murder within you, you're not saved. You do not have eternal life. If this were the case that murderers couldn't be saved, Paul wouldn't be an apostle nor a saved person. He murdered the church. He was against the church until he was transformed. So it's not saying that. Then in verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There ought to be within us a transformed nature that says, I care deeply about you, and of my resources, no matter what it may cost me, I'm going to see that through my investment in you, your life is made better. Then he contrasts that in verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods, that doesn't mean that you are wealthy. It just means you have something. There's something that could be useful to others. And sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How how does the love of God abide within him? You ever notice in the mail this time of year how many solicitations you get to give to causes? I think it's because around the spirit of Christmas, it is a spirit of giving. It's a spirit of compassion, a spirit of love. And so they appeal. And I'm going to tell you, it works. It works. There are things that I give to because I give to St. Jude's Hospital because those little kids, I can't say no to them. Precious little things, you know. Don't you love that? I just, okay, check. And then the wounded warriors come up. Oh, man, help them get a house. Yeah, get a house. And then children of the nations come up and said, you can Then children of the nation come up and said, adopt a kid. Oh, don't adopt a kid. Why? Because, now I'm going to tell you, this is something significant. For me, it's not because I have, I want to just give away a lot of stuff. It's because I have compassion upon others. Isn't that what Christ had for us? He had compassion upon us in this, in this very fashion. So what do we mean by the word compassion? I looked that up in Webster, such a great commentary. Compassion means sympathetic consciousness of others' distress. So I'm aware of others in difficulty with a desire to alleviate it. He's saying that the world does not have that spirit within him. It's not like Christ in that. I know a pushback on that is to say, well, doesn't the world do good? Yes, but also understand that Paul says, none doeth good, not one. Well, that must mean that they do not do pure good in the sense of what God's good is all about. And God's good is about advancing the cause of God. Deep within every benevolent act of man who is not driving the cause of God, there is the promotion of self. And look what I did. Period. All right. So we think, well, well, how's that compassion expressed? In Luke chapter 10, it says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, that is, talking to Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, with, and your neighbor as yourself. It's about love. It's about love of God and love for others. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will, ha- and you will live. And then this is, 
but wishing to justify himself. Remember, the first question is, what can I do to inherit? That is, that is the spirit of really Cain. What can I do? What can I do? And here it says again, wishing to justify himself, he said, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answers by this illustration. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, one who serves in the temple of God, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, one who was considered by others to be a half-Jew, not a pure Jew, one who had intermarried with the tribes around one that the Jewish people had a distinct dislike for. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, so he had a purpose business trip or whatever that he was on, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Here is someone who I see is in great distress, and I have now the ability and the means to alleviate some of that. He says he felt compassion and came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, brought him into the inn, took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to a man who fell into the robber's hands. And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. That means God does want us, as a result of being a redeemed child of God, he does want us to show compassion. People have said to me sometimes, you know, I get tired of all of these appeals. I don't. I'm not responsible. Listen, I know what my resources are. I don't have the ability to do everything that people ask me to do. And guess what? I don't have to do everything. But if I do nothing, then that's the definition that I have no compassion. Therefore, I'm not a child of God. All I have to do to all of the appeals that may come to me is to go before God and say, God, are you inviting me to be a part of this? And if he does, I do it. This is that simple in the process. Okay? So... This is the way of the world. Murder, hate, no compassion. But it's not true for us. And the underlying note is all the way through there. I'll read them in just quickness. We're not ignorant of God's expectation of us. We know what his love is about. We heard it from the very beginning. We do have the capacity to love others. God put it in our hearts. We can do that. We have passed from death unto life. We know the clear example of Christ's sacrificial love. We've seen that. We've experienced that. We have compassion for the world because God's heart is within us. And we love to do this. And we have authentic love manifested by deeds and not mere words. For John, therefore, the difference between Satan's children and God's children could not be more distinct. Those who murder habitually hate chronically are self-centered and indifferent to the needs of others, does not have eternal life. 
But those who, as part of the repentance from sin, and they trust in Christ, have renounced murderous spirit, hateful attitudes, and cold, selfish indifference to the deeds of others, give authentic evidence that they are born again of God. In place of those sinful traits, murder, hatred, no passion, Christ's or Christians manifest a genuine love to others, especially fellow believers, because the love of God has been spread abroad in their hearts. I close with this illustration. Ray Stedman, one of the mentors of mine in life, wonderful, wonderful man who's now home in glory, shared a story with his congregation, and he talked about a man named Art Kotz. Art Kotz was uh, was raised as as an atheist, even though he was of Jewish descent. Early in life, he became a Marxist, a committed communist. He was always a left-wing radical, a troublemaker in the heart and, and at the heart of every uprising that was coming about. At the close of World War II, he happened to be in Germany with the American army and personally saw the gas chambers of Dachau and Buchenwald. He came away from them shocked and sick at heart, filled with hatred, first towards the German race, and then realizing that this was not merely a national problem, but a human problem, filled with an all-pervasing sense of disgust and loathing for the whole human race. He went back to Berkeley and tried to give himself to education. But more and more, he realized that education was not an answer. Education could not change the hearts. Education could not touch the basic problems of human beings. Finally, he gave it all up. He resigned his position. His wife lost her mind. She had to be put in a mental institution. He ended up being divorced, footloose, as they say, and fancy free. And he went out wandering up and down the face of the earth, hardly knowing who he was or where he was going. One rainy day, when he was in Greece, he was hitchhiking. He had a week's growth of beard on his face. He was dirty. His back sack was dirty. And he was standing in the wind and the rain trying to hitchhike a ride. He'd been there for hours and nobody picked him up. He stood there, finally, and there was a man in a very nice, fancy, expensive car stopped. To his amazement, Arthur goes on to say, the man not only stopped his car, but he got out in the rain, came out, took my hand, and shook my hand. And not only that, but he took my backpack that was dirty and filthy and threw it on the back seat of his clean car and invited him to sit down. He said, Arthur said, even then I was surprised at what he was doing. Why was he doing this? Then the man invited him to get in his car, and they drove on. The man treated him, treated him as if he was a welcomed guest. Art Kant could not understand this. He was taken to a hotel, offered a paid room there, able to get cleaned up, and they shared food together. Finally, Art asked this man, or Art asked, what is it you're doing and where you're going? That was what was asked of Art. Where are you going? 
And then come pouring out of this man, this Jewish atheist, this pent-up hatred, this heartache, this misery, this resentment of life, all began to pour out of him right there in front of this benevolent man. The man sat and listened, and it was all through. He spoke one sentence, and he said, You know, Art, you know what the world needs? Those who are willing to wash one another's feet. Art said, I had never heard anything more beautiful than that. Why do you say that? He asked. And the man said, because that's what my Lord did. For the first time, this young atheist life, he heard the Christian witness. That was the beginning of the end. And then his whole life was transformed. He became an evangelist. His life was uh, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But the thing that arrested him and broke through those years of hatred, all the pent-up resentments and all the bitterness of the heart and life, was one act of kindness which manifested to an apparent undeserving young man genuine courtesy, kindness in the name of Christ Jesus. By this, Jesus said, shall all men know that you are my disciples. This is the path of love. If life is there, that is, if there is redeemed life is there, that kind of love will be there. It's impossible not to be there. Now let us show it, John is saying. It's there, let us show it. And that's what he says in his last verse there, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. I can guarantee you before this week is up, you will run into someone who needs this kind of love. It's not a matter of, are you going to run into them? Are you going to go to the other side of the street? Or are you going to embrace them? So this week I was having my car serviced. I was really happy to do that because it gave me a block of time when no demands were being placed upon my life. And I brought a book, I brought my laptop, and I was going to sit there. And I even found a place at this place that was separated from the rest of the people. And I could sit in this room alone. Now I'm studying about how to love others. (laughs) And this person comes in and sits down. I was actually trying to get back to a message there on my phone, so I thought, well, that'll discourage them. And so I was working on my phone there. The person just kept talking right through my, you know. And my thought was, in loving compassion, I'm busy, would you please shut up? (laughs) Now listen, I'm studying to preach this message. And then I thought, oh Lord, this is a test, isn't it? This is a test, and I'm failing. I put my stuff away, and I sat down, and I listened. Really listened. I wasn't just tolerating. I was listening, and this person talked. And then they started using some language that I knew, like pray, and God, and hope. And I said, oh, this this is someone I should be loving. And I found myself loving that person. It's a choice we make, isn't it? We have the power to do it.